Well, ladies and gentlemen, 4th of July weekend. I want to welcome you to Inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Savalero. Kelly Grayson is on special assignment, doing his uh, best paramedic stuff, saving the citizens of Louisiana. And uh, we tip our hat to the work that he's doing down there. I want to tip my hat to everybody out there as we come up on Independence Day. And I think we got a really great topic to talk about today. You know, it's just amazing that uh, every show we come up with different things that we're able to talk about. You know, one of the things that Kelly and I bring up all the time is the opportunity for EMS personnel inside and outside of EMS. You know, we get a really great start. We pick up a lot of great experience. You know, we pick up a lot of knowledge, and then we kind of branch off. Some of us go to medical school. Some of us go to nursing school. Some of us go into different careers. But where can being a paramedic, where can being an EMT lead you? Well, today I am very excited to talk with vintage, vintage podcast host, Buck Ferris. And you got to remember back in the old days with Greg Fries, they were doing podcasts together. And I think, Buck... I want to welcome you to Inside EMS, and, and Greg Freeze tells me you're one of the best uh, partners he's ever had on a podcast. Oh, that's awesome. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you paid him for that, though, so I, I mean, uh, you <laughs> just can't say that for anything, right? A lot of favors under the table with that guy, yeah. So, you know, Buck, you know, you kind of heard the introduction, right? I mean, so when we kind of, and this is something that you've been doing for quite a long time. I think we kind of talked before we started recording. It's been about 10 years since you've kind of been in this specialty, and that specialty is organ donation. And uh, when we think about that from a paramedic side, you know, we're always thinking about, you know, the people that we run into, are they able to be organ donors? And, uh, you know, such a great story when we know that people, uh, you know, uh, may not have, uh, uh, you know, may have expired, but their organs now are saving other people who are waiting for those life-saving organs. And I think that that's really special. I myself am an organ donor, but I really wanted to kind of, you know, put the show in that direction. So I guess you've been doing it for a long time. I guess my first question to you is, how'd you get into it? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting, uh, believe it or not, I fell into it, which was an odd thing to do. Um, but organ donation and tissue and eye donation, all that kind of donation. There, there are separations in the industry, um, but is a place where a lot of paramedics go when they do something else. A good friend of mine wound up in that situation, and uh, my career was about winding up. I spent 16 years as a uh, in EMS and as an EMS educator, and I was uh, looking for something a little different. And a friend of mine said, "Hey, I'm working in organ donation. They got an opening. It's just made for you. They already want an interview. Come over here." And the next thing you know, I've been there for almost 11 years, and uh, now I'm the uh, training coordinator of the entire organization. So, um, yes, other dreams can come true in other places. It's true. That's right. We're gonna have to get you on those commercials. But so when you think about you know the work that you do, I mean, such the importance of being part of this organ donation, um, you know, organ donation process, you know, if you think about the opportunities for EMS personnel, what, what can they do? I mean, are they actually har- harvesting the tissue or are they just transporting? I mean, what's their roles? Well, look at everything, but first I have to say, and this is true, we don't call it harvesting anymore. That had uh, a connotation of the Grim Reaper and some other things like that. So we, we've changed our We've changed our politics, and we call it recovery now. Okay, recovery. So right, thank fish. you so much for that. Because yeah, lots of lots of people still use the word harvest. I understand. Yeah, I've not um, heard. I've not heard the recovery, but I guess that makes sense. I've always I've always learned and said, and you know, I had the opportunity earlier in my career 
um, to to work with eyes and actually had the opportunity to recover eyes. And uh, I would actually go into the hospital and read the charts and make sure that they met the criteria. And uh, it was very, very interesting. I did that for about six or seven months. But uh, I've never heard the recovery thing, but it makes better sense. But I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. No, um, actually, the, the the interesting thing when I started working in in this field was how good a fit a background in EMS was for all departments. And we talked a little bit about uh, before the show. There's um, there's people in all departments that used to be paramedics and EMTs. Um, some of them are in management. Some of them are in tissue recovery. Some of them are work with families. Um, some of them, well, I'm in training. Uh, we have people that move into aftercare and take care of families full time. It's uh, EMS is a kind of a good fit. There's a reason for that, which I can go into for a minute. It's kind of weird, but organ donation, tissue, I. Um, it's still a very small industry compared to other places like. Uh, you know, how many hospitals are in your state, for instance? How many uh, nursing homes are in your state? How many clinics are in your state? How many EMS services in your state? Uh, in my state, there's one EMS, uh, there's one organ donation service. And and, and they're an organ donation service or, or an organization that, that uh, is in that industry is called an OPO, an organ procurement organization. And the last time I checked, I think there's only 53 of them in the whole country. There is about one per state. Up in New England, there's one that came. There's several, uh, several in big states like Florida and Texas and California. You'll see more than one. Um, but there, uh, it's a small industry in the way where you know, if if I change jobs now, I'd have to move, leave the state. <laughs> I really would. There's one place to work, um, and because of that, you don't have that many choices. And because of that, there's so little. Uh, there's there's no educational program. You can't become an EMT, and well, you can't get some sort of certification to start working in organ donation. Like you become an EMT and work in EMS, uh, it's still very much an apprentice kind of situation. And so they draw from other uh, nursing and allied health professions, and uh, they try them on. And if you're there after you've worked there for a while, then you'll start getting certifications. Where an EMS is kind of the other way around. You get your EMT cert, your paramedic cert, then you start working. Here it's backwards. Uh, you have to work at a place usually two years before they'll sponsor you to give and take a certification test, and it's a really big industry thing. Um, but <clears throat> EMS is one of those things that plugs in fairly well to the industry, and you can you can do well for yourself pretty quickly. Very interesting. So the the certification exam, I mean, you mentioned it. You've got to have kind of two years of almost on-the-job training. Is that across the states, or is that in your specific state? I mean, is there a national certification? How does that work? Do you know? There's lots, lots of certifications, depending on what you're doing. For instance, uh, last year, I tested to be a certified tissue banking specialist. And I forget what the rules are nationally, but they won't let you just let you walk in and take it. You have to work somewhere, and they have to sponsor you to go, uh, so they don't take outsiders. And in our organization, you have to be working there, I think, for at least 18 months or two years before they'll let you uh, sit for the test. And it costs quite a lot of money, and the, uh, my employer paid for it. And you go to any testing center, like uh, I think people taking them tests and nursing tests there, too. Those are just a place they sent me to. Um, but, yeah, it's very much sort of like a work first, get your feet wet, learn the industry, 
you're apprenticed into it. They sponsor you for uh, these uh, certifications. There's a couple different ones for Oregon. It's kind of like an al- alphabet soup. Um, and uh, th- they work with you that way. But uh, EMS, because of the subject matter of what we do, of course, we deal with life-threatening illnesses, and everybody from um, kind of our industry has, has had that life-threatening illness. They've came through the system, and now we're trying to make a good outcome out of the worst outcome. <laughs> In EMS, you're trying to prevent people from dying, and then all of a sudden when it happens, you kind of know what to do because you can talk to ERs, you can talk to ICUs, you can talk to coroners, you know how the system works, and now you're on the back side of it instead of the front side. I mean, that's all pretty interesting. So in this process, I find it interesting that you've got a, you know, you talk about 18 months, two years of internship, apprenticeship, as you say. I mean, are you still allowed to do stuff, or is it like, you know, don't touch anything until you get certified? I mean, how does that work? Well, it's very specialized. It's kind of interesting. If uh, <clears throat> When I was doing podcasting before, we had uh, we would interview people in other countries, and actually EMS is still very much an apprenticeship in other countries. Um, I don't know if it's like this anymore, but back 10 years ago when I was doing podcasting, if you became an EMT uh, in London, say, uh, you would get a job, and they would send you to a very brief school, and you'd start doing very small things, and they'd work you up the chain, and you know you could become a paramedic afterwards. So that's not unheard of in other countries. We have a very rigorous certification process now, of course. But uh, it's... Uh, you can start working right away, but it, it's such a specialized industry that no matter where you come from, nursing, EMS, something like that, it's going to take you about six months to train you to do what to do. And even after you get released, you're still going to be asking a lot of questions. And you maybe, maybe you haven't, maybe you're a tissue recovery specialist and you've been training for six or seven months, but you never just by chance of luck, never got a baby heart valve case. And so and you have to wait for those cases to happen. Like in EMS, maybe you haven't done a pediatric CPR yet. Nobody wants to, right? Um, but it's, it's a skill that if you can become a paramedic and maybe not even do that for a year or two or something like that, depending on where you work. Well, working for us is the same way. You can, you can recover eyes, you can recover uh, bone and connected tissue you can do this and do that but it maybe took you six or seven months to get your first heart valve case and after almost you know all that time you've only done one under supervision so sometimes to be fully trained where you can just do everything by yourself it can take up to a year just because the nature and specialization of what we do so when this is when you talk about tissue recovery um you're actually, I mean, tissue, you're actually talking about organs, right? I mean, so when you get multiple tissues, create an organ, or is it just oh, specifically, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So is so I just want to get the nomenclature down. When you say tissue recovery, it's not like epithelial tissue or, or uh, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the organs itself, right? Well, we, we should define terms. There are basically three channels of recovery in, in, when you talk about the whole industry as a whole, most people... Um, kind of put the umbrella term organ donation over it. But there are three types of donation that actually happen. Four, uh, if, if you want to look at it a different way. But uh, organs can be recovered, and we're talking uh, uh, heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, pancreas, um, small bowel. And that has a certain set of criteria. Actually, actually each organ has a certain set of criteria. But um, a certain amount of your staff will be devoted to doing that activity. And you'll be working with surgeons. You'll be have an organ coordinator. Uh, 
You'll have a perfusionist because some organs that come out, you keep perfusing them and record the numbers and publish those for people who are looking for the right organ. And so that's kind of like a specialty right there. Then there's eye donation. Very less stringent. Actually, mostly what they're looking for when you look for eye donation is the cornea or the outside lens of the eye. And there aren't many restrictions to that. It doesn't even get blood flow. So people who have certain conditions and cancers and infections, they can still donate corneas where they couldn't donate anything else. So it's a very separate set of criteria. There's specialists who go get ocular tissue. Um, and more than organs can be, I'm sorry, more than corneas can be recovered. There are, um, you can get posterior poles, you can do whole eye donation. Now you won't really transplant an entire eye to somebody else, but they'll use it for research. They'll do other things with it. And then there's the middle world. It's called tissue donation. And that covers kind of everything that isn't eye and isn't organ. And <clears throat> my service specifically will recover long bones of the lower extremities with associated tendons and everything like that. Uh, we will recover heart, uh, but we won't transplant that heart. We'll recover it for the valves. And each valve, you have four valves, can be transplanted uh, in somebody else. The vascular tissue attached to the heart can often be transferred to a pediatric patient. We can fix septal defects with that, we do things like that. We recover skin. That can go to burn victims, various skin grafts for various reasons. Uh, baby's cleft palates can be fixed with a skin donation, things like that. Uh, we also recover costal cartilage, which is the uh, cartilage around uh, the rib cage. That can do facial reconstruction. Uh, various things like that. Um, and there's various other small tissues and things that we do. Uh, getting into is probably too technical for the limit of this podcast. But so you got those three kind of realms. They all have different staff. They all have different uh, uh, common rule-outs and, and interests and, and time frames and things like that. And outside that, a lot of people forget that this happened, but blood donation happens as well. And there are blood banks everywhere. They're considered part of the industry, although we don't do uh, blood banking where I work. Um, but that also has very different criteria, very different goals, and very very different guidelines. So, yeah, there's there's different kinds of donation. Some people forget that. Most Mostly you hear about organ donation on TV or you've seen the movie that included something horrible about it. <laughs> And uh, people forget that there's uh, all sorts of do donation. There's blood donation, cornea donation, eye donation, and tissue donation. Well, that sounds really cool, and I think that's really interesting that, um, you know, it, I really didn't know. And I think that that really breaks that down well, and I appreciate that. But, you know, I want to talk specifically about, you know, your job. Uh, and you are a trainer. I mean, your job is to make sure, I guess, everybody's ready to go and they have the knowledge and the skills and the competencies to, to do this job. So maybe you could take us through a little bit, Buck, of your responsibility. If I was coming into the organization, I mean, how do I get up to speed? I mean, what's my process like? And, you know, do, do, am I studying all the time? Is it classroom? Is it self-study? I mean, so what's that process look like? Uh, all of the above. So... <laughs> Uh, pretty much if you uh, are hired into the organization now, I would be the person who handles your initial orientation. With COVID right now, we're doing everything online. Uh, so I would probably be sitting on my front porch doing that through uh, either uh, <laughs> through uh, Zoom or uh, Teams. We use Teams a lot now with Microsoft. 
And we have, of course, all the corporate compliance stuff, all the don't hurt your back things, you know, all that standard stuff. But then we kind of split off into departments. And you may see me doing that as well, depending on what department you're in. Um, and if you're going to be doing tissue recovery, uh, we'll give you classes specifically on FDA guidelines, uh, American Association of Tissue Banking guidelines, and all the processors we work with. Because just because you recover something doesn't mean it's ready for a surgeon. Every tissue we recover goes to somebody else to be processed and be prepared for a surgeon first. So we have partnerships with all these processors and all of them are different. They all have different processing guidelines that look for different tissues. They have different age ranges. They have different things. So you learn all that kind of material. And then as soon as you're overwhelmed with that, we hand you to sort of a mentor or a trainer and you start watching recoveries uh, first for a little while, kind of get your feet wet and learn the sterile field because a lot of people, depending on what industry you come from, you've never worked in a surgery before. Maybe you had a couple of clinicals in there. But you are going to be expected to maintain a surgical field and do these recoveries yourself. And we have an operating room that we work out of. Uh, sometimes we do have to work in other people's theaters, like in hospitals or something. We're really trying to avoid that with the COVID epidemic right now because for obvious reasons it's difficult. Um, and then during that, you will recover under the tutelage of somebody else for months. It may take about six months. Until they say, you know what, you're clear, but you know what, you never got that baby heart valve case. So when one of those comes in, we're going to try and call you, see if you're available to do that. There's always these things. For the first year you're working there, there's always this thing you haven't done. And uh, you might give them days where you come in on a day off to do it if, if something came up. Or they might just call you and say, oh, we need to get one of these for him or her. And then that goes on for about a year usually, depending on what department you're in. Um, the other thing that I do and I teach a lot, let's say you're going to work in donation services. Um, we will train you how to screen for appropriate. You know, there's there's a room that we have in, in our service, and every time somebody dies in Kentucky, the phone rings there pretty much. Um, and so what occurs is we screen cases from hospitals. We screen cases from coroners. We screen cases from hospice agencies, nursing homes, things like that. And we go through a set of questions and criteria to see if they could be a possible donor. And if you have a terrible infection, that may not be a good idea. Uh, if you've had cancer previously, that will take some tissues out of it. And we'll find out what you're eligible for, if anything. And then we approach the family, and that is an art in itself. Talking to someone and asking them if they can donate their loved one's tissues Sometimes we talk to them as soon as within an hour or two of the time of death is an art. And we have a whole class about how to deal with grieving people in crisis, how to pose this opportunity to them, how to uh, gently take somebody through that process without pushing them too hard and asking too much. And uh, that is a program that I'm still building and working with right now and, uh, and teaching in our organization. We're really overhauling how we do that. Because it's where the rubber meets the road, really. Uh, right, right. How many donors we get is how many people say yes. And how you pose that question right, right. is one of the most sensitive things you could ever do in the industry, that conversation you have when you call them up and you ask them. Yeah, I mean, I even think that it's something that, uh, you know, giving a, a notification of somebody's passing we think is hard. But, oh, my gosh, when oh. you opened up this Pandora's box to find a can of worms. 
right. um, yeah. you know, it's, it really is challenging. And, uh, you know, I don't even know the, the, the thoughts that go into that. I mean, you know, I, I, I got to ask the question, do in your experience, when you first pose that question, is it uh, anger? Is it, uh, is it, you know, uh, you know, are people relieved to say yes? I mean, what, what's the normal reaction to something like that, Buck? There is no normal reaction. You get, you get all of the above. Um, there are people who are terribly offended by the question. Uh, and those, those numbers are decreasing, thankfully, as the years goes on. Because um, so many community outreach programs and everything, we're really getting the word out about organ uh, donation. Uh, more, more and more people are registered, by the way. Um, and that does help. And you get some people who absolutely hinge on it. They knew that their loved one was registered. They may even have a recipient in the family. And if you tell them that they can't donate because they had an infection or they had a cancer that we couldn't get around or something like that, some of those people are devastated that they couldn't donate. And we have everything in between, you know. And you love to make the offer and have them accept and have it be meaningful to them. Um, but not everybody thinks that way. And, and some people, and these people are dear to my heart too. Some people are go, oh, of course, no, whatever you can use. No, they're wonderful. They don't need it anymore. They can't take it with them. Go ahead and take it. And they haven't even thought about it before, but it just seems such a logical choice to them. Um, we get more and more people like that. And we get a lot of religious people who have very, um, very guarded notions about it. But almost every, of course, you know, as a whole, as a national organization, we've reached out to all, the clergy of almost all religions that we can find. And no, but no religion is truly against organ donation or tissue or eye donation. But a lot of the uh, congregation or the practitioners of, of that religion will think that it isn't right or that they can't do it. Um, but that's that's not the case. Um you have a few denominations that often refuse, uh, but still say yes every now and then. For instance, Jehovah's Witness. I got my first Jehovah's Witness donor not long ago. And uh, nothing against Jehovah's Witnesses, but they have a very specific belief. They believe that blood products cannot be transferred from one person to another. That if uh, uh, a devout Jehovah's Witness will not accept a blood product, uh, for even for a life-saving situation, sometimes even for their children, they won't accept that. But what I was able to kind of get across to this family one time that is, well, you can't accept an organ or a blood product or anything or for anybody else. But that doesn't keep you from giving. And so if you're willing to reach out to somebody who doesn't have your beliefs and give these heart vows to them to help heal them, you're not really going against your own religious beliefs. You're helping somebody who has a different belief system than them. And they said yes, and we were able to do it. It was it was a wonderful thing. Man, so, uh, it just it's just amazing, man. I mean, I'm sitting here, and I just realize my mouth is open as I'm listening to this story because it's just so compelling. You know, I mean, this is really something that you don't think about. I mean, we know that uh, you know, or um, uh, organ donation is a big part in our society. I got to tell you, when I was younger, I wasn't a volunteer, and as I get older, I'm like, yeah, if anybody wants my stuff, who cares? I mean, it's probably not any good anyway, right? But um, you know, I think as I'm getting up there in time, Buck, there's just so many questions I have to ask you. But I think one of the things that I want to focus on is over your tenure, over your career of, uh, I guess, you know, over a decade, give me a couple or, or let the listeners know a couple of the biggest things 
that really have have really kind of set you back that really was maybe your learning moments or your aha moments or i mean this is such a special thing right and there's got to be something that you experienced that we don't even we're not even thinking about okay yeah well i you know i can tell you a story and this is a bit of a moving story too i like to tell the story to to new people i'm training but uh, back when i was new at it i had just started doing tissue recovery and this was was a few years ago we don't do this much anymore we used to have we used to have these we didn't have our own surgery center and every time we recovered somewhere we had to go out to the hospital and some of the hospitals are quite far out and we would actually take um chartered flights and they put us in these little well if you ever done flight medicine you know that uh it's it, it looks sexy until you do it uh there's some <laughs> rickety planes you get into and you're landing sideways in a gravel lot somewhere in the edge of <laughs> the universe to pick up somebody it's not very fun sometimes and um we were doing that and we we flew out to some far-flung hospital to go recover um, tissue from an 11-year-old who had been in a car wreck. And the poor guy's head was just, he had this terrible uh, skull fracture. And But at the age of 11 years old, his heart valves are so valuable because uh, this is something a lot of people don't know. Um, let's say you're a baby who has the heart murmur or a poor valve that's regurgitating and they need to change it out and you wind up getting a human heart valve and not a mechanical one or something that human heart valve will not grow as you grow so let's say we find a heart valve for a baby about two years later they're going to need another one as a toddler and about a few years later they're going to need another one between the ages of five and eight then they're going to need another one in their teenage years. And, and sometimes wow. you'll have four or five chains out until you get to adult size and you finally get an adult size heart valve implanted. Then you're good. Interesting. Uh, but finding people in that age range that will fit somebody else who may be a teen or a preteen or something. So here was an 11 year old. We're going to get his heart. Uh, that could save the lives of five other people if we do it right. And he was also big enough to do other kinds of donation, but we were going to leave him alone because the parents really wanted to. All they wanted to do was the heart valves. And so we did the recovery at the hospital, and while we're doing that, the nurse comes in and says, wow, we don't get this often. The family actually wants to view the patient after you guys are finished. Oh, my goodness. They're like, oh, gosh. Um, and you know, I don't want to graphically describe, but he had a severe skull fracture. There oh were goodness. deformities. Um, we, the heart, and there were other deformities of him too, and they hadn't seen him since then. And we often do viewings, but not right after recovery. I mean, we, and these aren't controlled circumstances in somebody else's building, things like that. So... And the heart recovery was the least of our problems. When we do that, it actually looks pretty good. And you put a onesie over them and you're fine, right? Or not a onesie, I'm sorry, but a surgical gown. But he had a lot of trauma. And so we started trying to bandage his head so that it had the same shape of the head they could see. One of the eyes had been damaged so much we felt like we wanted to cover that but leave the other eye open. And I swear we spent more time trying to make him presentable to the family than we did getting the heart, the heart out. And towards the end of that, I said, well, mom and dad are down the hall. They're going to come in. And remember, I'm brand new. 
and this is one of the first pediatric heart valve cases I've ever done. I'm kind of nervous about what's going on. And <laughs> the lady who was teaching me, she had been doing this for like 20 years, and she was kind of a, just a grizzled old veteran. And every time I said, well, how did I do? She goes, jury's still out on you, man. I don't know about you. <laughs> she was never she was never one for uh, praise or, or a lot of compliments. She was always told me the jury's still out on me. But we were trying to put this kid back together so he could be shown to his parents. And I said, hey, is there a hot pack anywhere in here? And everybody started looking. Well, what do you want a hot pack for? I said, get the nurse and just see if we can. And I said, do you have a warm, you know, a hot pack or a warming pack where you can, you know, punch it and move the chemicals around it gets warmer? And I'm like, yeah, sure. We got a couple in here. And so I took that. And my training coordinator was kind of staring at me. She's like, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? <clears throat> and so I uh, hit the hot pack and got it warm and put the kid's hands around it and wrapped it up for couple minutes and she goes what are you doing there i said you know what if mom's gonna come and hold this kid's hand i don't want her to feel something cold so i'm gonna warm up this guy's hands if she comes in and does that'll be fine and she's like okay (laughs) and so we go through all this and seriously we spent an hour putting this kid back together and warming up his hands and doing all this kind of stuff at the end of it the family actually declined they didn't want to go through with it they didn't want to see me after i guess somebody talked him out of it it was probably the best but after all that work, we were tired. Ah, like, oh, man, i got to fly out of this place and get back, and we're going back to the thing. Right. So what I usually did is I said, well, how did I do this time, boss? And she goes, you'll do. You'll be fine. If anyone messes with you, I will defend you because you're cool. I like the hand thing. You're doing fine. And at the end of the day, that was the kind of thing. Taking care of the donor family, making sure meaning comes from them, um, making sure the donation actually happens. And making sure that we don't make a mess going through. And we're very respectful to the recipients and the family and everybody in the body and everybody involved. And so that wound up being a meaningful moment, even though the family didn't even come back and see. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing we do all the time, trying to recover. Amazing. i got to tell you, man, there's just so many more things that uh, I could ask you. And, you know, we've come up on our time and we really need to kind of move along. But you got to promise that you're going to come back and share a little bit more about this. I've... Love to know, know more about the training or the competencies and, you know, the things that you've got to do to prepare for this. And I, I never really asked the question of how, you know, people can get into it, but you got to promise you're going to come back so we can do it again. Absolutely. It's fun. And for everybody out there, you know, I got to tell you, this was a real interesting show. I mean, not something that we think about, but, you know, being a paramedic, being an EMT, there are opportunities that we can do and we can get into. And I want to thank Buck Ferris for joining us. You know, he's been a great guest and he promises he'll come back. And for everybody out there, I just want to thank you for joining once again on Inside EMS. For Kelly Grayson's standard closing, any questions, comments, or concerns, go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com. And we look forward to chatting with everyone again real soon.